I'm Kara Miller. Welcome to Innovation Hub and to our holiday special. Every week we talk about being inventive, what it takes to move society forward, and this week we're going to tell the story behind some classic parts of the holidays, home, shopping, and food. And when I say food, I really mean chocolate. But before we break out the candy, let's go home. The historian David Halberstam once wrote that if the first great business figure of the 20th century was Henry Ford, the second was a man named Bill Levitt. Levitt did something totally unglamorous. He bought up a piece of land in an area known for growing potatoes, Long Island. And in the late 1940s, he started to build small, affordable homes, homes that he knew returning veterans would want to buy. Louise Cassano's dad was a firefighter in Brooklyn when her cousins moved out to Long Island. That's when Cassano says her parents fell in love with the suburbs. They uh, saved up their $100 deposit to put down on the house. And actually, my mom had saved it without my dad even realizing what she was doing. She was kind of sneaking a few dollars here and there. Cassano and her family moved out to Levittown in 1951 when she was just a kid. And she's been there ever since. That generation really felt that owning their own home was the dream that they had uh, for their families, to be married, to have a family, and to be able to to purchase their own home. You know, it wasn't specific to my parents. It was kind of the common thing that everybody worked toward and wanted to achieve uh, at that point in time. Bill Levitt watched the evolution of the American dream, and he knew that he could capitalize on it. To meet demand, Levitt actually borrowed Ford's classic production technique, the assembly line. But since you can't really move a house down a conveyor belt, he moved the workers. At their height, Levitt's builders could put together a house in 16 minutes. And they built Levittowns, not just in New York, but in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, and plenty of builders all over the country have followed Levitt's lead. The suburbs have forever changed economics, politics, and culture. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies, which is just a few miles away from Levittown on Long Island. He's also a former reporter for the Long Island newspaper Newsday. Larry, welcome to Innovation Hub. Well, thanks for having me. So how different was Levittown from what had come before? Very different. Uh, The suburbs, such as they existed, were hubs around uh, train stations Hmm. where people almost entirely commuted to the city and the businesses out there supported uh, those folks. Uh, It was rural uh, economy with agriculture, timber, fishing, uh, except for the people who commuted into the cities. Hmm. Did he expect, do you think, the suburbs or Levittown to be as popular as it was. He was a great businessman. Mm -hmm. Uh, He had a dark side, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Mm -hmm. but he knew that if he could produce homes that had eye appeal and utility, they would sell because the demand among uh, the GIs was enormous Mm -hmm. and it was fed by government policies, the GI Bill, that made cheap loans and uh, subsidized rentals available on a scale we just had never seen before. So let me bring in again the voice of Louise Cassano that we uh, heard from earlier. Uh, She moved to Levittown, as I said, when she was just a kid uh, in the early 50s, but she has stayed there ever since. And at one point, she got to interview Bill Levitt, um, and she talked to us about how residents felt about the Levitt family. 
the Levitts were kind of treated like gods <laughs> in this community because because of the opportunity that so many people had to, for the first time in their lives, to own a home. And they did a wonderful job. When Levittam first started, the father, uh, Abraham Levitt, would go around and he would uh, check on everybody's shrubs, make sure that they were doing the right thing. And if they didn't, he'd knock on their door and say to them, you need to do this or you need to do that to <laughs> make things better. Or if people were not following the local ordinances of not hanging laundry out on a Sunday, he would knock on the door and say, you got, you know, you got to take the laundry down. It's today's Sunday. It's incredible to me that story she tells of like Abraham Lovett going around and being like, yep, you can't hang your wash out on Sundays or like that shrub is not up to code here. I mean, that on that micro level, it actually reminds me of uh, Ray Kroc and, and how he dealt with McDonald's. And he would go around to McDonald's franchises and like pick up trash. I mean, he was the CEO. He didn't need to do that, but he did it. Well, Levitt did it in part because... He wanted it to conform to his vision, and he was a, a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also a taskmaster. Some people might use the expression anal retentive. Is that <laughs> un- improper for radio? <laughs> it's probably um, okay. Okay. But the fact is that he signed contracts with people, not only for a specific sized house at a specific price, but a lifestyle that would come with it. He right. promised there would be swimming pools yep. within yep. walking distance of every house. Right. He also promised it wouldn't look like New York City. And for some people, that was a code <laughs> word or a dog whistle for don't worry, there won't be uh, people of color there. Huh. It also meant there's not going to be laundry. There's not going to be the kinds Let's of see. things that people who didn't like city streets were right. trying to get away from. Right, right. It was not the tenements that That's people right. had lived in in the city. That's right. Do you think there were skeptics that thought, like, you're buying potato fields in Long Island. Nobody wants to live there. There's no way you're going to fill up a community this way. The only uh, concerns that people had when they moved out was, where are the jobs? Uh-huh. And how do they get to the ones that they want to keep that were based in the city? And Levittown was not directly on a Long Island Railroad line. Long Island Railroad is the largest commuter rail in the country. Mm-hmm. And you have to drive a little bit to get there. And that's one of the problems that Levittown created for 50 years after the fact. But during the time it was being sold, uh, every home had a car. Uh, thanks to Henry Ford, right, right. they were affordable they, as they well. They worked together. They, no, they, these things absolutely worked yeah, together. Yeah. And in fact, it wasn't one plus one. It was the synergy of one plus one equals three and four. So the men, almost entirely, Mm. uh, either were driven to a train station by the wife Mm -hmm. or they drove into the city and uh, the wife stayed home and took care of the kids. And on Saturday, they all piled into the station wagon and and filled up on groceries. Uh, And that was the suburban way of life for many years uh, that fueled an economic boom that we hadn't seen for generations since the industrialization Mm -hmm. of the North. And it was great while it could last, Mm -hmm. at least for white people, but it also, uh, 50 years later, when tastes changed, when the number of automobiles that households were buying was clogging streets, uh, when the lack of affordability in homes was forcing or at least uh, incentivizing owners to chop up their little Levitt homes into an extra apartment right. to bring in revenue. It leaves us with a lot of problems nowadays. 
I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Larry Levy, the Executive Dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. So I'm going to go back one more time to Louise Cassano from Levittown, and this is her talking about her sense of community when it came to diversity. Most of the people that originated in Levittown were um, white, Anglo-Saxons, <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Italians, a lot of Jews. And eventually, here and there, we started to see other cultures move into the community. Um, at first, they were so noticeable because they were so rare. But eventually, um, we started to see more and more uh, cultural changes. It was surprising at first um, because it was, it was such a white community. And those changes... Um, pleased some people and didn't please others. Uh, the New York Times once wrote that Levittown, uh, the houses there, were more than architectural creations. They were social creations. And what she's really talking about is like the creation of a certain kind of society. Why was that? Well, you know, Levittown was a public-private partnership. I know we talk about that a lot, the three mm. Ps mm. for getting economic development going. But it was a partnership between a visionary business person and uh, government subsidies to make it happen. It was a suburban land of opportunity. The problem was it was only a land of opportunity for whites. It was not a matter of informal or personal racism by uh, this person or that person. It was written into the covenants, the lease right. and mortgage and deed agreements. And it took a United States Supreme Court decision, I believe in the 50s, hmm. that finally put an end to that. Hmm. So, you know, it's not the same as other communities. And for all the good that Levittown did and all the vision it had, and you, you got to give them credit for that. It also sowed the seeds for a lot of problems down the road. Hmm. Uh, Long Island, for instance, may be diversifying, but it is no less segregated than it was. Hmm. And the seeds of that were planted back in the 40s and 50s hmm. and in enshrined in law, hmm. uh, or indeed, rather, in Levittown. To your point of the seeds, in some ways, for the lack of diversity, that those seeds were planted early on, Bill Levitt, who you mentioned, you know, had a little bit of a dark side, um, he once said, this is a quote from him, the Negroes in America are trying to do in 400 years what the Jews in the world have not wholly accomplished in 600 years. As a Jew, I have no room in my mind or heart for racial prejudice. But I have come to know that if we sell one house to a Negro family, then 90 or 95 percent of our white customers will not buy into the community. That is their attitude, not ours. So there is somebody right sure. out there, like not sugarcoating <laughs> it, being like, this is the policy, as you said. And it was kind of written into it. Well, at minimum, you can say that Bill Levitt did not have the courage of what he claimed his convictions were mm -hmm. to take a financial and economic risk in trying something different. Um, is he right? Would 95% have stopped buying? Possibly, but not everybody would have. And if you don't give in to blockbusting and redlining and you don't cause panic and fear among owners where they stampede out and sell at a discount and slumlords buy up communities, if you take, make real efforts to keep that from happening, maybe it wouldn't have turned out as he uh, thought or feared it might. 
Well, what does it say to you? Um, and I mean, we're using Long Island as an example sure. here, but but I'm guessing, and set me straight here if I'm wrong, we probably could be talking about lots of other parts of the country. I believe so. Uh, so what does it say to you that the suburbs have both gotten a lot more diverse, but then also are very, very segregated? I guess I just wonder what that says about Levitt's original vision that like really people don't want to live in the same neighborhood as people who aren't like them. Well, you know, there are debates going on about that. Um, Is there a degree of what is sometimes called self-segregation where a black family would prefer to live in a black neighborhood? I guess um, what we've seen a little bit more of, but not a lot, not nearly enough, is that if a black family does have money, there are more neighborhoods they can go into, but there are still plenty that they could afford where they can't realistically uh, buy a home or feel welcome. Um, they can, but that you're saying they would feel yeah, that's people the whole, wouldn't welcome them. Okay. That, that's what I was referring to yeah. when I talked about Levittown. Mm. There are plenty of black families that can afford homes in Levittown. Mm-hmm. They choose not to. Mm-hmm. They choose not to go through uh, what some of them consider the gauntlet. Uh, you know, they there are ghosts in that community to them, you know, ghosts of racism and exclusion and, and really dashed dreams. Imagine you're a black soldier who risked his life for as many years and as many times as a white soldier. Mm-hmm. And you can't get to live right. or even buy in most places in these new suburbs. Right. Imagine what that felt like. Mm-hmm. And imagine the impact of being excluded from economic opportunity and the much more rapid gain in value of those homes in the white communities in terms of how it affects family wealth for generations. Uh, let's talk politics for a minute, because um, we live in a country where people often talk about there's a big rural-urban divide when it comes to how people vote. And it feels like this isn't really new, but it it sure feels like it's a moment of this being uh, thrust into the spotlight again when the suburbs are the battleground. So if there's a rural urban divide, what's right in the middle there and literally geographically, it is the suburbs. And it is often said it's the Pennsylvania suburbs, the Ohio suburbs that decide elections. I wonder, do you think that is going to continue? And just talk a little bit about the power of the suburbs in politics. Back when my parents moved out in 1955, Long Island was overwhelmingly Republican. Uh, Back when I started covering politics for Newsday in 1977, it was still overwhelmingly Republican Mm -hmm. with a slight shift. Okay. Nowadays, it is majority Democratic. Really? As the suburbs become more and more racially diverse, and if the Democrats continue to get huge levels of support from people of color, the suburbs are going to be counted more as the cities are, which are democratic territory. So the swing areas are going to move a little farther out to what are now considered exurbs or outer ring. There have been books in the last few years, and I've talked to some of the authors here, um, called things like the end of the suburbs and the great inversion, the idea being that the suburbs, you know, people in the suburbs were moving back into the city. 
is there some truth to that? Is there something going on here, um, you know, that's new? Yes and no. There was a a period, and in demographic history, it's a blip uh, that tracked the Great Recession, where people were moving from the suburbs into the city. There was that inversion. But it's reversed. And more and more communities on Long Island, which used to be called the capital of nimbyism, and who knows, maybe it still is, not in my backyard is. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, right. right. Um, uh, more and more of these villages are embracing what we call smart growth or transit-oriented mm. development. And the more you see that happen, the more diverse you're going to see uh, the communities getting. You know, I think of the expression about the Samuel Clemens, uh, news of my death is premature. I think that people are saying the suburbs died are really, uh, it's either wishful thinking or a misunderstanding of data or drawing conclusions on age and other cohorts, as we say in in academia, that are too short to declare a, a new era. Lawrence Levy is the executive dean of Hofstra University's National Center for Suburban Studies. Larry, thank you so much. Well, thank you for letting me talk on and on and on. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes made of ticky-tacky. Little boxes on the hillside. Little boxes all the same. Levy says that when the 50th anniversary of Levittown rolled around in the late 1990s, the Smithsonian wanted a real, original Levittown house to put on display. The problem was that the standard for housing had changed so much in half a century, the average American house had more than doubled in size, that most Levittown houses had been expanded and changed. 20 years later, the Smithsonian is still on the hunt. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, analyzing the genetic weaknesses of more than 25,000 tumors to craft precision treatments for cancer. More at DanaFarber.org slash BeatCancer. In the classic 1947 movie, Miracle on 34th Street, the Santa at Macy's says something kind of shocking. He tells a mom and her son, who are in line to see him, that Macy's is sold out of a fire engine toy, and he tells them to go to a totally different store. Well, the only important thing is to make the children happy. And whether Macy or somebody else sells a toy doesn't make any difference. Don't you feel that way? Huh? Oh, me? Oh, yeah, sure. Only I didn't know Macy's did. Well, as long as I'm here, they do. Now, there are a couple of things that are surprising about Santa's suggestion. One is that he's sending a Macy's customer to a competitor. The other is that the whole movie is set against the backdrop of the department store wars, which seems so dated to us now. Macy's arch rival in the movie, Gimbel's, went out of business in the 1980s. Macy's itself is now struggling. Projections are that about a quarter of shopping malls in the U.S. are going to close within the next five years. Many of those malls are concentrated in lower-income suburbs. And shopping does not just have to do with what we buy. It defines how we spend our time, what our towns look like, where the jobs are. It has an enormous effect on communities. Whenever you close a store, when you close a mall in that community and the people are left without some of their favorite places to shop and the city is left without the tax revenues and left without the jobs, 
it can be devastating on a community. And I feel terrible for those communities. I, I really do. That's Daryl Rigby, a partner at Bain & Company, who has followed the retail world for decades. In retail right now, and this is probably not going to come as a shock to you, there's been a lot of action for high-end luxury retailers, and there's a lot of action on the low end. The middle part of the market is the part that's getting torn. Clearly, the lower end, for example, we do see some of the dollar stores doing very well. Some of the, they wouldn't call themselves lower end, but the TJ Maxx and Ross that pull sales from department stores. And so we are seeing that kind of bifurcation, and I think that's likely to continue until the retailers in the middle market there figure out how to make their stores worth going to. The leader, of course, of the inexpensive retailers, the pathbreaker, and one of the two heavyweights in a modern-day version of the Macy's Gimbel's Slugfest is a place called Walmart, which pioneered low-cost retailing in a very disruptive way. Walmart cut the legs out from under a lot of single-category stores in a lot of places, and not just little towns, but, you know, places like Raleigh and Kansas City, slightly larger towns. Charles Fishman wrote a book about Walmart about a dozen years ago, and he's followed the company closely ever since. He writes for the magazine Fast Company. And Walmart did that with pricing and with convenience and with selection. But, of course, Walmart didn't do it. Walmart doesn't have a tractor beam. Walmart doesn't show up in town and suddenly everybody sort of automatically starts shopping at Walmart. We did that. Americans did that. We voted with our wallets. And those small-town stores, probably many of them weren't in a position to compete. They certainly couldn't compete on price. Some of them did survive, and the ones that survived realized that if you walk the aisles at Walmart, you couldn't beat Sam Walton at the only game he cared about, which was price and having the stuff on the shelves. But what you could beat him at was helping people. Fishman says, take a look at a chain like True Value Hardware, which might not be able to compete on price with Walmart, but the clerks can tell you what kind of a wrench you need for this project or that project. Helpful salespeople, though, haven't been enough for a lot of stores. At the end of the day, many of us just love low prices. And if that has meant abandoning Main Street for the nearby Walmart Supercenter, that's what we've done. And if that has meant a shirt is made in China instead of Ohio, we're okay with that. In the early days when Sam Walton had 12 stores, no one cared what he thought. He either bought the products people were selling or not. But once you have 1,000 stores or 2,000 stores, the power dynamic has shifted. And Sam Walton said to big players, General Mills, Kellogg's, Procter & Gamble, and little players, I want the prices of the stuff you sell us to fall about 5% a year. Whoa, 5% a year just out looking at the horizon, just 5% every year for as long as we can imagine? Right, right. And sometimes, whatever, in year four, sometimes that meant you doubled the size of the product and cut the price just a little bit, and so you got the efficiency that way. There's a, a legendary story. If you walk into any store in America now, deodorant is not sold in a box. It's sold in its container, plastic or, or metal or glass right, container. right, right. When Walmart started selling deodorant, it was all in boxes. And Walmart said, get rid of the box. 
the deodorant's already in a container strong enough. The box costs money to make and ship. Mm -hmm. It takes up shelf space, even just a little bit of shelf space. So that year, you got your 5% by eliminating the box. Right, okay. And the 5%'s easy to get, right, in the first year and the second year and maybe even in the third year. But then things start to get difficult. Mm -hmm. And when they start to get difficult, you're not looking at the efficiency of your assembly lines or you know, what kind of light bulbs you're using, you're looking at your labor costs. Mm -hmm. And that's the point at which things started to move overseas Mm -hmm. to meet the competitive demands. And Walmart had enough scale to be able to say, if you won't sell us those athletic socks, if you won't sell us those bicycles, if you won't sell us that toothpaste at the price we want, we're going to go right to your competitor Mm -hmm. and buy it from them. They will. They want Mm -hmm. our business. Mm -hmm. But that same demand eventually corrodes quality, right? There are actually products that Walmart sells, especially in the small appliance category, where there's a model number just for Walmart because the guts of the product aren't as good as the guts of a product that you would buy in an appliance store. And so if you look at the whole model number, it all looks the same except right at the end. There were holdouts, Fishman says. The folks who made snapper lawnmowers, for example, didn't want to reduce quality, and their lawnmowers weren't carried in Walmart for several years. But Walmart made suppliers an offer that was hard to refuse. People became addicted to the Walmart business. Suppliers became addicted to the Walmart business. And once you're addicted, then you either risk losing 10 or 15 or 20 percent of your business with a single decision or you knuckle under. And that's how products, maybe you start out making some products overseas, half the products overseas, the low-end products overseas. And so none of this happened between 1991 and 1993, right? It was a long path. Walmart is now the biggest company in the world. 95% of us spent some money there in 2016, but they remember how hard it was to win the price wars. Fishman says that the year that Walmart sold a billion dollars worth of merchandise for the first time, Sears sold 30 billion. And they might have been able to crush Walmart if they had taken it seriously. Now, though, Walmart's worried that another company is about to be the change maker that they once were. Walmart is five times, six times the size of Amazon. But Amazon today is the company that sets the rules of the retail landscape. And in the last three or four years, Amazon has doubled in size and Walmart has grown by 2% a year. So it's 2% on top of a really big base. But it's Amazon that is innovating and it's Amazon that people fear. And among the the folks who fear Amazon is Walmart. According to Daryl Rigby, the retail expert at Bain & Company who we heard from earlier, they should be scared. Boy, Amazon is such a powerhouse. And I believe it's a power for good, actually. But one thing is for certain, it is kicking retail Darwinism into fast forward. (laughs) And the weak are dying faster than they were before. The strong Mm. are being forced to get better faster. Mm. They've got 90 million members, 60% of U.S. households now that are prime subscribers. And Prime subscribers are Amazon's biggest promoters. They're twice as likely as regular customers to be telling their friends, you should really go on and get Amazon, get Amazon Prime. 
Rigby says that Amazon carries more than five times the number of items that Walmart carries and that other retailers are way, way behind. But if there's one thing that Amazon's competitors should be the most scared of, it isn't variety. It's innovation. You know, Amazon Prime was developed in about two months Two months. Wow. Okay. And look how long it has taken competitors just to respond to that, let alone Mm. invent something like that. And the idea with Amazon Prime was that let's just create a club. We'll just have a flat fee. People pay it every year. And then they won't pay any shipping and handling after that. That's right. And it's sort of funny. A lot of people think that uh, Jeff Bezos invented Amazon Prime. He didn't. It actually Mm. came from a software engineer who put it into an employee, an electronic employee suggestion box that said, I think we could offer very fast delivery and charge for it. And I think there are a lot of customers that would love it. So November of 2004, Jeff Bezos sees this in the suggestion box and he says, I like this. Let's go out and develop it. And Hmm. so he set up a very small, about a dozen people, very small team and said, I'd like to have this ready within two or three months. And that's what they did. They Hmm. developed Amazon Prime in about two months. Rigby points out that Amazon fails all the time, but they are relentless at trying and perfecting new ideas. Jeff Bezos likes to talk about it will be forever day one here at Amazon because day two means stasis. It means that we start deteriorating, and I don't ever want that to happen. So he's just trying to keep the growth rate as high as he possibly can, get as much scale as he possibly can, and realizes that that scale will eventually improve their economics. Walmart is not taking this threat lying down. They do not want to be as complacent as Sears once was when Walmart was an early stage threat. They have been pouring resources into their website and customers have been flocking to it. But as the battle of the giants rages on, eager to capture all of our shopping dollars, what about the empty storefronts and the malls that close and the jobs? Daryl Rigby thinks that the future of socializing may be based less around browsing boutiques and more around sharing both products, like cars and music, and experiences, like bowling and cooking classes and concerts and vacations. I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what customers care about these days is the experiences. And the more they can save money from not having to purchase or own those things themselves, but have more of those experiences, the happier they are. And by the way, there's a lot of research to suggest that experiences create more happiness over the long term than ownership of items does. Because... The ownership of an item just gets to be cumbersome and it breaks. But experiences, in our minds, we actually make those better over time. The vacation, even though we may have had some bad experiences on the vacation, they become fun, shared family experiences at some point in the future. And we forget the bad parts and we emphasize the good parts and that experience just gets better and better over time. It doesn't appreciate. It gets more valuable. We've got more on our website about the Walmart-Amazon battle and how it's changing our lives. Plus, recent news that the buildings that Macy's is housed in, its real estate, are now worth more than the store itself. 
Check it out at innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast. Nearly 30,000 companies worldwide use Mimecast to help prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, phishing, and impersonation attacks. Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. Mimecast.com. The holidays are times when, at least to me, it somehow feels okay to eat an unlimited number of desserts. You kind of get a pass for a few weeks. Companies that sell us those desserts know that this time of year is gold, and they sell the heck out of it. Inside the Snibble Hershey's Kiss is the big, big taste of chocolate. Hershey's Kisses, that little mouthful of chocolate everybody loves, wrapped in all the colors of Christmas. Inside this little Hershey's Kiss is the chocolate we all That's a 1979 commercial from Hershey's, which did bring to America something that many of us fell in love with, milk chocolate. To understand how that happened, you have to understand Milton Hershey, who didn't just create a taste, he didn't just create a brand. He, like Bill Levitt, who we talked about earlier, created a town. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School. She has written about Hershey. She's the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, welcome back. Thanks for being here. It's a great pleasure to be here, Kara. So uh, tell me a little bit about what the candy business was like uh, right around the time that Milton Hershey was trying to get into it. This is the late 1800s. Sort of what's the landscape of candy in the U.S.? So the landscape of candy is perhaps most easily captured by your listeners thinking about Laura Ingalls Wilder Mm -hmm. and Pa Ingalls, right, walking into the general store and buying lemon drops from a barrel or some peppermint sticks from the general merchant, right? And bringing them back in a little brown paper bag as a extra special treat. So candy and sugar, right, the real most important ingredient in candy, were relatively scarce and, in general, luxury items for people to consume. Hmm. And that really began to change slowly in the late 19th century, partly as a result of the proliferation of mass manufacturing, the the slow, but then with building steam, the rise of a consumer economy. But it's still candy, you know, in in machines, candy at counters in supermarkets, candy everywhere we go, in bowls, in offices, or in workplaces, that's all in the future. It's completely unimaginable, right, in the late 1800s. So the creation of chocolate was not the first thing that Milton Hershey did in the candy business. And in fact, I was, I mean, I think of Hershey's as very successful, and it is, but this was a guy who went through bankruptcies. Like, he was a not a successful candy maker, uh, like, from the get-go. Not at all. He's, he's, his story in many ways is, what does the mileage of failure teach us, right, as an entrepreneur, as an innovator? And... Um, Your listeners may or may not know that he was born in Pennsylvania, in the dairy country of really south-central Pennsylvania, not far from Lancaster. And so he grew up in a relatively poor family, tried all kinds of schemes to make his living, settles on candy at a relatively young, young age, and then goes bankrupt several times in different kinds of candy operations, mostly selling at retail, but also some kinds of wholesale ventures. And so 
there was a kind of roller coaster quality to Hershey's career that lots of high tech entrepreneurs today would relate to. Lots of great leaders in history like Abraham Lincoln could relate to. But he learns a lot by failing a number of times, you know, kind of dusting himself off, picking himself up mm-hmm. and moving on. Right. And and his mother's family actually gets to the point where they're like, we're not lending you anymore. You're <laughs> cutting you off. You just fail all the time. You fail too many times, Milton. And most of the time, he's not selling chocolate, right? He's mostly selling sour balls or what today we'd call cough drops or in some cases, little nougat, little heart-shaped or flower-shaped nuggets. So again, this is a market that wouldn't be completely recognizable to us. And he turns out initially not to be very good at it. Mm -hmm. So he ultimately does find success making um, caramels. Why does he get into the chocolate business at all? Because it's not really a business that is big in America at that time. Not at all. I mean... Many years ago, you and I talked about Howard Schultz bringing Italian coffee to Starbucks and the innovative techniques and marketing, you know, tactics he used to do that. This is not dissimilar from that. Chocolate existed in Europe. It had existed in the United States since the late 1700s, but as a very, very rare kind of luxury item that was dark chocolate, not milk chocolate. Mm -hmm. And it was really the province of a tiny, tiny, small group of people. And Hershey really gets his legs as a candy maker in caramels using fresh milk. And then in the late 19th century, he visits a number of fairs, world's fairs, and discovers chocolate, mostly dark chocolate. But but there are other players from Europe that are beginning to make milk chocolate. And he gets very interested in it. And he buys the equipment of a candy maker, a chocolate maker, at one of these world fairs, kind of buys up the equipment, has it shipped to Pennsylvania where he's making caramels at the Lancaster Caramel Factory and begins experimenting with it. Hmm. And he begins experimenting with milk chocolate. He'd been making and playing with dark chocolate in select ways before that, covering some of his caramels in it, interestingly enough. But this was more of a kind of, you know, a remote sideline for him. And then he begins experimenting with it. And he, like so many people you've captured and, and interviewed and talked about in this program, is like an obsessive tinkerer, right? right? He's tinkering. He's right. trying all these things. He's sure that milk chocolate will be appealing to people and will ultimately right, lead to something much bigger than dark chocolate. Mm-hmm. That's his real, if you will, leap of faith or flash of foresight that, that really defines the business. And he tinkers for literally, Kara, several years, working night and day well, to, to figure out how to make milk chocolate. I, I've got a, to that point, I have got a quote that really struck me from a colleague of his who was part of this tinkering. And here, here's what the guy said. He said, uh, we were both afraid to say we were tired and we wanted to go home. Night after night and Sundays, we even worked the whole night till we were done out. You can't think anymore. You can't do anything. We would work on one experiment till it was done. I mean, you know, you think, oh, it'd be so fun to test milk chocolate. But I mean, like you said, this was an obsessive man and it doesn't actually sound like a lot of fun. No, and it's it's very, it turns out to be very difficult. Logistically, practically, I mean, crushing cocoa beans, which is what he decided to do to actually get the chocolate powder, is difficult physical work that you have to do. It creates all kinds of, you know, powder that gets in your hair and your eyes. Figuring out how to 
add the milk to chocolate without the milk going rancid. So this is way before the birth of modern preservatives. We don't, they, he had very few options to try and maintain the freshness of his product. How to mix the butter with the cocoa dust, the chocolate dust is powder is very, very difficult. I mean, this is, it's so messy. It's so unlike like the way we think of when our mothers or we make brownies and we, you know, we heat the chocolate up and then we add the sugar and we like, all we want to do is lick the batter. This is nothing like that. This mm-hmm. is messy, smelly, mostly disappointing work. And so the story of Hershey in these critical years at the very end of the 19th century is the story of someone who, just like your quote, evidenced, will not give up. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Nancy Kane, a historian at Harvard Business School who has written about the life of Milton Hershey. You alluded to this before, but Milton Hershey didn't just build this chocolate brand. He built a town to create this brand, which I I don't know how many other entrepreneurs can say that they have done. Why did he build a town literally, and it is there today, right? Hershey, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, it smells like chocolate, right? Yeah. Because one of their main manufacturing facilities is still there, and the streets right. are called, like, you know, Cocoa Way, right? right, right. The streetlights are shaped like Hershey Kisses, right? Yeah. I mean, you, you can't believe it, except it's true. I've been there many times. I spent a couple of months altogether researching this Harvard Business School case I wrote in Milton Hershey. Exactly how meant, I would design a town. Right, right. It's so interesting. <laughs> right? So my first answer is I think he starts out saying, this is brand new. We have to build it. A little bit like Josiah Wedgwood and the China Company back in the 18th century saying, I don't have artisans that know how to make the kind of luxurious China I need to create. I have to create them and the factory to make it because I don't have a template. I don't have a prototype. And I think Hershey starts off that way. So he wants to be near fresh milk. So he needs to be in dairy country. He needs to be near lots of fresh water because you need a ton of water to make chocolate. He needs to be near transportation hubs because he's envisioning early on a national market. He's got to ship some ingredients in like cocoa beans, but he's also then got to ship finished product out. So he's a bunch of prerequisites. And then last but not least, this is an interesting twist on the human element here, which is always important in all of these kind of stories that that you chronicle so insightfully on the show, and that is he actually is from this area, and he wants to settle in his home land, his home country. And he actually wants his parents to get involved in the business because they'd been they'd split up and he wants to bring them back together. So he's got this very interesting, like familial piece to it. So he gets started building a town, building a factory. And pretty soon he's decided, I've got to take care of my workers. I'm going to build not only a manufacturing facility right, and the transportation infrastructure I need, and I'm going to lay a sewer and I'm going to build streets and I'm going to start building worker housing and making it affordable to my workers. And then we're going to need a bank. We're going to need schools. And we're going to need a dance hall. We're going to need an amusement park. We're going to need parks. I think he wants the stability for his workers that his parents never had because his father was such a 'er ne'er-do-well as a provider. And the family was always feast or famine and mostly famine. And so I think there's a part of him that unconsciously but consistently is, I didn't know this kind of stability. My father couldn't find a job for a company like Hershey, with God as my witness, my workers aren't going to have to worry about their housing, their food, their livelihood, their kids' education. And so I think there's a very both idealistic and very personal piece Mm -hmm. to the building of this town that is very much close to his heart, as well as the business model and kind of you know, his strategy for the company. It's both good things going on, both aspects motivating him. 
And, and there are, you know, obviously factory towns and mining towns with general stores and stuff that, you know, you can get things on credit. But this just goes so beyond that. I mean, he builds, um, you know, a hotel and golf courses and, like you said, a dancing pavilion, a zoo. I mean, there, there's almost something of Walt Disney in here that he's right. kind of building. I mean, he's building a town, but the hotel he once built like an Italian villa. He gets really upset that when they're building houses for the workers, they're too similar to each other. And he's like, tear these down. I want everybody's house to be unique. Right. And there's something... Uh, like this plant. I mean, Epcot was supposed to be a planned community, yeah, right. and there there's is. something really of it in here. That That's a really interesting observation. You know, the title of the case is Candyland, or the one that subtitles is. And and I think I'd never put it nearly I, as... I should say, you for Harvard Business School, you write cases, right. and you wrote a case Forgive on me. I wrote a case, yeah. right, for our students and yeah. executives to discuss this case as someone who wanted, whether he was calling it that or not, to use his business to move what he considered good forward in the world, mm-hmm. right? So, yes, there's ego. Yes, it turns out he loves building. I mean, the man is kind of a frustrated civil engineer. He throws himself into the building of the town with such verve and such passion. But also, I think there's a sense that capitalism, and he wouldn't have called it that, but business can be a force for good in people's lives, including in workers' lives. Remember, this is the age of strike after strike after strike. I mean, George Pullman will have a terrible strike, right, in the in the middle of the 1890s, right? Andrew Carnegie will have an even more terrible strike with steelworkers in Pittsburgh. This is an age of a great labor unrest as people pour into factories without the benefit of all kinds of OSHA or environmental or other kinds of protections mm-hmm. or union protection right. for workers. So some of what he's doing, I think, is very tactical. What's that expression, the best defense? Defense is a good, fast offense, yeah. right? Build them a wonderful place to work and live, and they will stay loyal. I think there's an aspect of that that's very much part of this. And then there's a part of, I wanted this because I never had it. And then there's a part of, what if business is a tool or a way of moving forward the boulder of social progress? I think all three of those things are operating for this man. When you think about um, Milton Hershey's legacy as a businessman and also even as somebody who changed food and consumption in America and literally what our tastes are, um, what do you think that legacy is? Well, first, I just have to mention one thing. As you were talking, I'm saying changed our taste. So at the time he got started in the candy business, Americans ate less than 25 pounds of sugar Complete total per year okay. on average per twenty five pounds today. Per person. Okay. It's about a, between one hundred and fifty and one hundred and seven, right? <laughs> and there's good things about that, and there's some really less good things, as we all know, right. because of the obesity and diabetes epidemic. Big sugar, right? Is Milton Hershey is part of big sugar, mm-hmm. although he never saw that coming, and it wasn't a problem when he got started. But I think his legacy is one. Right. Again, and my students, what my students take away from it is the possibility of founding a business, not just to make you rich, but to make the world a better place. Secondly, the resilience. He was a very resilient person. I mean, lots of successful entrepreneurs are one shot wonders and they make a big impact on the world. And there's you know, they're worth our study and conversation and thought for that. But he wasn't a one shot wonder. He was about the power of dedication a kind of stubbornness to what he was trying to do because it was not easy 
to move his dream forward of milk chocolate. It was certainly not easy to build this town and stay with it as he did. And a lot of people who get ri- as rich as he did and become as have the possibilities that he have lose complete touch with where they came from. And he, you know, interestingly enough, as rich as he was, he lived very frugally all his life. Hmm. Right? He didn't. He didn't do the Gilded Age robber baron thing at all. Although he certainly could have afforded to. So the ability to climb up to the into the ether in terms of money and power and never lose sight of where you came from and what you owe to others that have less than you, that's an important piece of his legacy, too. Nancy Kane is a historian at Harvard Business School. She is the author, most recently, of Forged in Crisis, The Power of Courageous Leadership in Turbulent Times. Nancy, thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure. Thank you, Kara. Who can take a sunrise? By the way, despite the town that he built for his factory and for his workers, Milton Hershey did not escape the wave of unionization that swept the country. When his workers wanted to unionize, Hershey couldn't understand why. We've got more about that contentious time on our website, innovationhub.org. And if you're wondering, What happened to the Hershey fortune? Milton Hershey gave most of it away to a home for orphan boys. That school exists today. It now accepts both boys and girls, and it is one of the richest schools on a per capita basis in the world. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help from Sarah Frazier and Kaya Williams. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Mimecast, committed to making email safer for business. And from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, danafarber.org slash beatcancer. PRI, Public Radio International.